If you have your Bible, turn to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We have been looking at a whole series of messages based just very loosely on some of the ideas from this book called Radical. Uh, David Plath has written this. I like many things about this book, and I will go again on record saying there are some things I'm not crazy about uh, from this book, but I like some of his ideas, and he challenges me, and he, and he makes me think, and I like books that make me think, even though I won't necessarily agree with everything. But one of the things he talks about is God's mega strategy, his mega strategy. What is your strategy for life? Do you have a strategy for life? In our little devotional that we hand out, that we have in the foyer that are free to you, it's called the Indeed uh, devotional, on December 1st, this is what it said, most of us live our lives with a conscious focus. We have a vision of what we would like to be. Do you have a vision of what you'd like to be? When I was growing up, I wanted to be George Beverly Shea, had that deep voice, that really low voice. That didn't happen. And if that didn't happen, I just wanted to be like my older brother, Jim, who has this beautiful full head of hair. Why are you laughing? Didn't happen, did it? He says, we have a vision of what we would like to be or how we would like to live, and we pursue it. That vision can be shaped primarily by work, relationships, lifestyle, family, location, leisure, or any combination thereof. But few people live with a focus on the end of days. Few are single-minded about the inheritance to come. And it goes on to talk about that. The truth is, focus, most of us don't have a mega strategy. Most of us have a, a micro strategy. We have a mini strategy. Our strategy is to get through another day, especially if you have kids. If you end up the end of the day, you haven't killed them and they haven't killed you, it's a celebration, right? And if you make it through the teenage years, woo, that's awesome. You just think this is, a, is an amazing thing. Do we have a mega strategy? For $29.95, you can buy a book called The Mega Strategy by Dan Lee Dimke. Here I thought I had made up this great word, and he's already sold this book. Dan Lee Dimke, at his own profession, at age 10, was a lecturing astronomer. He made mega millions, he says, for untold people. They're untold because no one has come forward and ever said that he made them mega millions. By the way, there are only four reviews of the mega strategy, and all four reviews say, don't waste your $29.95. But if you really have to have it, go to Amazon. It's on sale for 4 bucks or $1 for the used one, and nobody's buying it. Because I've looked for a week, and there's still the same number of copies that they had available at the beginning of the week. What's your mega strategy? You don't have to buy a $29.95 book to find out what God's mega strategy. Jesus came and we repeatedly talked about finishing God's work. One of the things that David Platt says that God's mega strategy is not what our mega strategy. How many times did God build a mega church? How many huge buildings did he build when Jesus came? He didn't do that. How many huge churches were built? It didn't happen. Mega conferences. Well, wait a second. When David Platt said that, I thought, wait a second. He had one mega conference. He had 4,000 men and all their families and even fed them. And another mega conference, we had 5,000 men and all of their families, and he fed them again. So anytime we go to these conferences, first of all, they should be free, and they should feed us with five loaves and two fishes, right? But our mega strategy isn't like that. The mega events, what Jesus did primarily for three years is focus on those closest disciples, the, the 12 that he chose and just a handful of others that came along. For three years, he pursued that. 
And then when he got to the end of his ministry, uh, in what we call the high priestly prayer that we're going to look at in John 17, look at what it says in verse 6. Here's his strategy. I have revealed you, Jesus is speaking to the Father, I've revealed you to those, I've revealed God the Father to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. God's mega strategy, Jesus' mega strategy was this. I'm going to pour my life into these people, and they are to pour their life into other people. That's God's mega strategy. It's simple, it's powerful, and it depends on us relying on God. That is the key part of this. God's mega strategy depends on us relying not on ourselves but on God, and we're going to look at that just a little more carefully. I want to read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 23. What strategy, what strategy does, Jesus, does Christ provide for us? What strategy has he given us? Number, uh, uh, if you look at that, look at verse number one. After Jesus said this, said what? Well, Jesus has been giving this, them this, this whole talk about the Holy Spirit coming, and he's, and he's prepping them for the time that he's going to the cross in just hours from then. He's trying to prepare them for his death that's coming. He's getting the disciples all ready to go. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven That's not the way we pray. We bow our heads. What's going on? Well, the Jewish posture of prayer was looking up instead of looking down. Interesting. But Jesus takes the Jewish posture of prayer. He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, life, that they may know you. Get that. Eternal life, he does not say this is eternal life that they join a church. He does not say this is eternal life that they're baptized. He does not say this is eternal life that they do uh, 12 good deeds per day. It's not what he says. He says this is eternal life that they have a relationship, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. His mega strategy has already been completed. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and and they have obeyed your word. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. He keeps saying that. They are yours. Whose are we? Who do you belong to? We belong to God. Jesus keeps saying that over and over and over again. Look at verse 10. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Wow, what kind of unity are we supposed to have? The same unity that Jesus and the Father had is the same unity that we're supposed to have. How well are we doing with that? That's a whole other message, okay? Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled, and that is Judas. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, 
But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Did God send Jesus into the world? Absolutely. Came as a baby. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas time. Jesus coming into the world. Just as the Father sent him into the world, where are we sent? Into the world. We have a task to do. We're sent into the world. Go back, verse uh, 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Verse 19. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified, set apart. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus was praying specifically for the disciples, but now he broadens it out, and he's praying for us. This prayer is specifically for us. Look at verse 21. That all of them, that's us, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me, that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I want to stop there. If you want a a little further understanding of John 17. I did a whole series on the book of John on Sunday nights. You can go back and request it, a a Sunday night message. Just ask for John 17. They'll find it. It's not that many weeks ago. But I want to look at just two things because this is specifically the strategy. Here's the first part of this. Christ offers something worth living for. Jesus Christ gives us something worth living for. As he gets to the end of his ministry, as he gets to the end of his life, his physical life here on this earth, and he's getting ready to die for us and then go and be resurrected then and eventually go back to heaven, he stops and he gives us this, this, this summary statement of what's happened. And it, and it begs a question from us, what do we live for? I love Christmas. Every, every year when Christmas time comes around, I mean, when, they, when the stores start getting the decorations out right after July 4th, and, they, and you go into the stores, and it's still 90 degrees, and, the, and they're singing jingle bells. You know, it's just kind of this warm feeling. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas music. I love the lights. I love the, uh, I, I love the, the decorations, the kinder, gentler side of people, unless you're in the stores. Amazing. Do people just forget how to drive in, in, at Christmas time in the parking lots? We were in a couple of parking lots uh, Friday. That was scary. I said, let's go home, Kathy. I'm losing the Christmas spirit here. It's tough, isn't it? I love Christmas. It focus, focuses me on God coming to us, coming to me when I could not get to him. God, from the very beginning of time, his strategy was always that he loved us 
And Jesus goes back to, to the creation and he says, when I was creating, and he, and he shows an equality with the Father, he says, when we were creating before the, before the beginning of time, before the creation, when we were planning this, Father, and he's going back as, as, he, as, as, as if he's reminiscing with the Father, and he says, do you remember, Father, when we were planning this and we knew that they would fail and, they, and we knew it would cost me everything and I would go to the cross? Do you remember, Father, when we did that? It was still worth it. And he, and he talks about coming down, and he talks about living as a man, and, and, and he talks about fully God, fully man. It focuses me on that. It points me to something far bigger than me. It reminds me that my life matters because it matters to God. What are you living for? Bob Haynes passed on to Gary Dixon a, a video, and Gary passed it on to me, of Patrick Henry Hughes. You can write the name down. Go to YouTube. Patrick Henry Hughes, young man, 23 years old. He was born without eyes, and he was featured on Extreme Home Makeover, and, and they built him this wonderful home, and he's a Christian young man, and his family is, uh, really has a strong belief, a strong testimony in what God has done. And after I watched the YouTube video, I began to do a little research, and there's a, a, another video. If you keep looking far enough, you'll find this video where they, they uh, talk to him and they interview him a little bit. And they said, Are, have you ever been mad at God? And this is his response. God made me blind. God made me unable to walk. He has, he, his legs are, are malformed. He can't walk at all, basically. And God gave me limited dexterity in my hands. Big deal. God gave me an incredible ability. And they said, well, how does it feel as a disabled person? And he stops him. He says, I'm not disabled. He said, just because I can't see and just because I can't walk and just because my arms only go out just a little bit and I, and I can't do the things that you think I can't do, he says, I'm not disabled. God's given me special abilities and he can play the piano like, like you just can't believe. He can't see, but he, know, he hears it and he can play it and, and he can play the trumpet and he's got this beautiful, pure sound in the trumpet and when he sings, you just think, oh my goodness. He says, big deal. His father gives the testimony. He says, when, when Patrick was first born, all of our hopes and all of our dreams dissolved away because we saw the son that we thought would always be this image of what we thought he would be. And instead, it was this child that we would have to take care of. And he says, God taught me a big lesson. When his son told him he wanted to go to the University of Louisville, his father, after he graduated from high school with honors, his father said, I will change my schedule. He works at UPS. He does the, graves, uh, the graveyard. He does the all-night work at UPS so that he can be with his son, takes him to class every day so that he can help him get through the classes. And he has such a beautiful sound with a trumpet that a man came to him that was the director of the marching band and said, would you like to march in the band? And Patrick said, I can't walk. He said, is that your only reason to say no? And he says, yeah, I guess it is. So his father pushes him in a wheelchair in all the formations, practices with him, learns all the routines, and pushes him as he plays the trumpet in the marching band. That together they have written a book called I Am Potential. I Am Potential. The last thing that on the interview, the video interview that they did on TV, on ABC, the father is asked for his last words, and he says, Patrick is my hero. Christ offers us something worth living for. What if we live with that same passion for Jesus Christ, the same understanding of what God can and will do in us? You say, well, I can't because, and the Lord says, what? 
I've given you abilities. I've given you a cause. I've given you freedom. I've given you grace. I've given you love. I've given you power. I've given you the Holy Spirit. What do you mean you can't do it? What do you mean that you're spiritually disabled? No, you're not. No big deal. What if we live with that same passion about what God could do in us? Philippians 1.21, Paul caught that passion. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What if we lived out the potential? What if we wrote a book with our lives called I Am God's Potential? Jesus says, I'm going to give them the full measure of my joy in verse 13. He says, I'm going to give them my protection in verse 15. He says, I'm going to set them apart. I'm going to do amazing things through them in verses 17 and 19. God says, I am going to give you something far more than what you could ever live for. Here's the other part of the strategy. Christ offers someone to share it with. Everything is better when you have someone who comes alongside we have, a, we have a routine. We, Kathy and I, I mean, the kids are all grown up and they live in other places, so it's just Kathy and me. And every Christmas, we have this routine. Kathy looks at me and she says, should we just put up, we, we put up normally three Christmas trees, one in, in the living room, one in the family room, and one outside the front door. You know, we love Christmas, what can I say? And she says, let's just put up one tree. And I say, okay. And then she says, but I sure would miss the one in the, in the, in the, the family room. And I say, well, let's put that. But I really like the one in the front window so people can see it. And I say, well, let's put that one up. And she says, it looks kind of bare without the one in front and I said well let's put that one up and I get on the ladders and I put up the lights and I do this and I get the trees out and once I get all the trees out and we get all the ornaments spread out this is the routine I put the ornaments on and Kathy moves them to where they should be <laughs> we have the, we have the routine down and every time we get the ornaments out, as we put the ornaments on, each time that we do that, we remember when we got it and, and what kid was there and what Christmas there was. And, and we go back, and it's so meaningful, it's so full because of the person that I get to share it with, putting up the decorations at the church. And every time we do this, we say, well, last year we were going we to remember to do this, and we laugh, and we eat cookies, and we get cider, and we have just a wonderful time. Jesus says, I and them and you and me, we're together. It's terrible when someone is, is there only out of obligation. John Ortberg in one of his books wrote, uh, What Brings Me Life. He says, we often, ask us, uh, we often assess how spiritual we are by how much we're pursuing our distorted list of what counts towards spiritual growth, what counts toward God, what counts toward God being happy with us instead of by the fullness of life that God wants us to have. Working with joy, tipping generously, listening to someone patiently, eating gratefully, reading quietly, playing happily, it all counts. Every moment is a chance to live in the flow of the Holy Spirit flowing in us and through us. No relationship can last if it's built purely on should, not even with my dental hygienist, he writes. Get what John Orberg says. I love this. My wife, my kids, even my dog don't want me to be with them only because I think I should be. Because they love me, they give me freedom, and in that freedom, desire grows. Likewise, where the Spirit is, there is freedom. It may seem strange, but when I think of God giving me freedom from the staleness of too many shoulds or have-tos, I find that my love and admiration for Him grows. I want to be around a God like that. Sustainable spiritual growth happens when I actually want to do what I ought to do anyway. 
This means I have to change how I think about what counts as spiritual. For what makes an activity spiritual is not the activity itself. It is whether it is whether or not I do it with and through the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? What really counts towards spiritual growth, spiritual activity, is what I do in and through the Holy Spirit. It is the quality of the presence and interaction with the Spirit while I'm doing the activity. When we begin to read that, when we get, begin to understand what he's saying, and when we begin to understand what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, you may live all of your life thinking that you're working for a job or a career, or you may be thinking that you're going to pour all of your life into a project, or you're going to pour all of your life into a family or something. And he says, I have something far greater than that. And not only that, I will come alongside. We'll do it together. When Jesus left, he promised the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, and 17 says, You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 31.6. Look at what it says. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. We love to share. How many times have you teased women about when they want to use the facilities, when they go to the, want to go to the ladies' room, what do they always do? They always say, would you like to go with me to another lady? They say, ladies, let's go together. Let's go to the ladies' room. And I was, there's some silly commercial on where the guy's not manly because he says he's going to go to the bathroom and he turns to one of the other guys and says, hey, you want to go with me? And they're all making fun of him and then he can't drink the right beer because he you know, can't go to the bathroom by himself. Stupid commercial. Except... I realized I've never gone to a ball game where I didn't ask some guy to go along with me to the ball game. I mean, that's true, isn't it? How many guys say, let's go to the ball game? Well, I think I'll just go by myself. We all like, we, everybody likes to do things in pairs. We tease the women, but the truth is all of us are like that. We love the company of having someone go along. I ran across a supposedly a true story. A pastor was doing a funeral for a, a, a family. The mother had passed away. The man was left there. He was devastated. He had two children. He had an older son and a little girl. And after the pastor did the funeral for the the family, the little girl came up and gave him a big, huge hug. And after she gave him the hug, she said, thank you, Jesus. The man said, oh, honey, I'm not Jesus. And this is what the little girl said to the pastor. God knows it's hard to feel his hug sometimes, so he gives us someone to hug in his place. And I was just thanking him through you. Christ offers someone to share it with. He gives us something beyond ourselves. He, from the very beginning, with the creation, knew what it would cost, and he sent his son, and he died on the cross, and he gave us this whole plan of salvation far bigger than what we could imagine. And he says, I'll come alongside and do it with you. So what strategy does Christ provide for us? Well, what lifestyle does Christ provide for us? This is the second part. If you have your Bible, go back to Matthew 28. Just a couple of verses. You know them well. Matthew chapter 28, we're just going to look at verses 16 through 20 because there's a lifestyle then that he prescribes for us, that he encourages us to have, he offers us, and it's so powerful. Look at what it says in Matthew 28, 16. Here's the lifestyle. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Wait a second. They're they're, They're not on some famous mount. They're not on the Mount of Olives. They're not overlooking Jerusalem. No. On this particular case, he takes them back to their comfort zone. Peter, James, and John, and many of the other disciples are from Galilee. 
And I think he goes to, to these cliffs that overlook. I think it's where he spent much time with the disciples. It says he, he, he went with them to the Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. The cliffs of Arbel, as I believe, where Jesus did this. It's this incredible panoramic view of the Sea of Galilee. And it's, and it's where Jesus, I think, many times spent time with them. And in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's such a strange word. We're going to look at it. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What lifestyle? I think three things, just three words. The first word is believe. Believe. It says when they saw him, they worshipped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, there's three Greek words that could have been used here. One is not believing. It's, it's the opposite of faith, and it just puts the ah, the a, in front of it, opistian, and that means to not believe. There's another word that means that you're confused. You, you may not believe because you just can't understand it, and that's aporian. That's, again, not having the understanding, not, not being clear. But here he uses a totally different word that's for doubt. It's edistasen. Edistasen is a different word used only one other time in the New Testament. That's in Matthew 14, 31. Peter's walking on the water. You remember the story? Peter's walking on the water, and it says that as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was okay. But he, when he took his eyes off Jesus, he saw the wind and the waves and Matthew 14, 31, Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you edistasen? Why did you doubt? Every other use that we have of that word outside of the, the New Testament, it means why did you hesitate? You, you, you were going along and something held you back. You believed, but, you, but there was something that stopped you in your belief that you were believing, but, but something kind of tripped you up just a little bit. Edistasen. Is there something that holds us back, makes us hesitate? What if it doesn't work? What if I mess it up? What if I, what if I blow it? I've, a couple of times we've put up glass shower stalls in different houses that we have, and, and you put the glass doors on, on the, the tub or the shower stall, and they have this kit. And when the kit comes, you have to cut a couple of pieces. The one that goes up the side, you're not supposed to cut. The one on the bottom and the top, you're supposed to cut. And they have this big, huge red thing that comes on the top of the kit. And this is what it says. Go ahead, measure two or three times, make your cut. If you mess it up, don't take it back to the store. Call us and we'll replace it for free. Did you know they actually will do that? I know because I cut one wrong and I called them and I said, I messed up this top cut. And they said, oh, you dummy. That'll be $59. No, they didn't do that. They said, what's your address? And they even overnighted it. I mean, they got it there in like two days. I could not believe that they would do that. So then I asked for the other sides. No, I didn't really do that. What makes us hesitate? David Platt says, when Jesus summarized his work, he never mentioned raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, or feeding thousands with a boy's lunch. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus staked everything on his relationship with 11 men who had faith, 11 men who had begun to believe, 11 men who just had the beginnings of that faith, and they did not hesitate. 
God calls us to faith in God, and faith in God and worship go hand in hand. Several other times we see that when you begin to worship the Lord, your faith grows. Uh, like John 9, 38, Jesus heals the blind man. You remember the story? Jesus heals this blind man, and the blind man is asked then questioned by the Pharisees and, the, and, the, and the, the religious leaders, and they say, who did this? And the guy says, I don't know. Some guy says, you know, I'm, you know do this, and I did it, and, and I could see. I, I went to the pool, and I came back. I could see, and, and they said, but who was it? And he said, I don't know, but he must be a prophet. And then he says, he, and, and he begins to grow in his faith. And finally, in verse 38, Jesus comes back after the religious leaders have said, listen, get out of here. It couldn't have been Jesus. It couldn't have been him because this is not the Messiah that we think he should be. And so they threw him basically out of the temple and said, you can't come back here. And Jesus comes and approaches him and he says, what's going on? And he says, if I just could find the Messiah, if I just knew who he was. And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. I'm the one who did it. I'm Jesus. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And then look at that last phrase. And he worshiped him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us, sing with me, adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. The root word for worship is adore. And the Lord says, I want you to come at this Christmas, and I don't want you to adore the sales, and I don't want you to adore Black Friday, and I don't want you to adore the, the lights and the presents more than me. I want you to adore, to worship me. Because when you do that belief, that faith will grow. If Jesus Christ has sovereign control over heaven and earth, do you believe he can able, enable you to do what he's asked you to do? Of course. Then worship him. Adore him. Believe. Don't hesitate. Number two, connect. When Jesus gives them the words after they have believed and they've worshipped and, and, and all it says, go as you're going, make disciples, baptizing them. And it's all about connecting. Baptism is, is the word. Why is baptism mentioned? It's a clear, symbolic picture of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. It was their mode. It was their way of saying, listen, I'm, 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 I'm going from an old life to a new. It's their, their way of saying, I'm going from being dirty to being clean. It's their, old, it's their way of saying, they would realize later that it was as if Jesus was saying, come and die with me. Go under the water and come back out again. Go under the earth as if you're buried with me and you're raised again to new life. That's what baptism is all about. It's that picture of dying to sin, being raised to life with him. We connect on many levels. We connect on many levels. I tease about the San Francisco 49ers. Diane gets, I give Diane fits over that. I actually like the 49ers, but it's so much fun just to give her a hard time about it. Because we connect. The more upset she gets, the more I tease her about it. I mean, I've been a fan of the Chiefs. I can like any team. It's okay. But we connect on these different levels. We connect. On, maybe it's some other hobby. Maybe it's some other sport. Maybe it's something else. We connect over food. We connect over, over those things that we have in common. And the Lord says, I want you to connect in this one thing. In the early church they did. And look what happened in Acts, chap, Acts chapter 2, I believe it is. Acts 2.46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. 
You know what? My, my greatest fear is that we go through Christmas and we say, oh, I have to go to this dinner. Oh, I have to go to this event. Oh, I have to do this. Folks, you have the opportunity of getting together. Ladies, you have the opportunity of getting together this Friday with every other lady that's a Christian in the church, and you can celebrate who Jesus is. And you say, well, that's just not a good time for me, and, and you know, I can't eat chocolate. It's not about chocolate. It's not about the gifts. You have the opportunity of coming alongside someone else who loves Jesus Christ, and you can celebrate who he is on Friday night or or with the sunshiners on Thursday night. These other meals that we have, these banquets that we have, that's what it's all about, celebrating who Jesus Christ is. David Platt once again, again says, and I love this phrase, we are to invite people into a larger community of faith where they see two things, the life of Christ in action and, the experience, and to experience the love of God in person. Get that? They can see the life of Christ in action, and we can experience the love of God in person. Kevin, who's playing bass with us, came, and as I was speaking with him this week, I, I said, man, I just love having you guys here. He says, I, you need to know something, Pastor. When we came in, we were just overwhelmed with the love. We were all overwhelmed with a welcome. People they actually seemed happy to have us here. They don't know you yet, but, you know. <laughs> no, of course. That is the way it should be. When we see someone that comes into the community, of the larger community of faith, do they, do they see the life of Christ in action? They experience the love of God in person. To believe, to connect. And here's the last one. To disciple others. To disciple. We're to, to, to disciple. What does it mean to make disciples? I read in a book, and I love this book, it's No Man Left Behind, Patrick Morley has written this, it's for men's ministry, but he says, we're the only organization in the world that defines success by what we don't do. That's what Christians are, is that, is that not true? We're the only organization in the world, for many churches, they define success by what we don't do. What's the old saying? I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. So as long as we do that, you know, I was raised in the South where you couldn't even think about tobacco in any way except in the churches where they sold tobacco because they had tobacco farmers. But we were defined by what we did not do. And the only verb in all of this, in this great commission, starting in verse uh, 19 on, therefore go and make disciples. It looks like there's a lot of verbs. There's really only one verb, make disciples. It's one word. It's an imperative and everything else is a participle. As you go, it assumes that we're going to go. As you baptize, it assumes that we're going to baptize. As you teach, it assumes that we're going to teach, make disciples. As you're doing all of these other things, there's one essence. It assumes we will do what we're told to do. But one of the best definitions of discipleship is from Patrick Morley. He says this, discipleship is the process of helping people move from relying on themselves or others to relying on God. Discipleship is not just that you can know the Old Testament, all the books of the Bible in order, or the New Testament. You should know that because when we flip through there, it's embarrassing sometimes to you, but it's okay. Use the table of contents. Bring your Bible and flip and and learn those books of the Bible. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship is not that you memorize John 3.16 or or Romans 10, 9, and 10 or, or, or any number of other verses. That's not discipleship. Those are all good things to do, but that's not discipleship. Discipleship is learning to grow and function as a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. 
And you think, well, of course, that's what we do. Really? We have people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, and if we're not careful, we help, we're there to, to catch them to, to give, as, as Christ gives birth to this new life, and we see this new baby come in, and then we just tell the kid to go on and, and be themselves. That's not what God's called us to do. We're to disciple. We're to make disciples. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 in the Old Testament, it, it says, only be careful. And watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. God is is begging the people of Israel and they failed miserably. They did not make disciples. They did not bring up their next generation and the generation after that. Why do we spend so much time and effort on children's ministry, on youth ministry? Why is that so important? Because there's another generation that does not know Jesus Christ. And they're jaded and and, and they feel hurt because they've been let down so many times. If we do not do something, we will lose the next generations. We will fail to make disciples of all nations. But the worst would be that we fail to make disciples in our own hometown. Make disciples. The, the one Greek word, this compound word, become a lifelong learner. To walk, to talk, to eat, to function as a believer. It doesn't mean you don't take classes. Uh, someone asked me one time, what class should I take to, to begin to, to be a follower of Christ, to walk in, in what Christ wants me to do, what class should I take? And my first th- thought was, what class did you have to take to learn to walk as a, as a little child, as a little boy, a little girl? Did you take Walking 101? Do you remember that class before you went to kindergarten? Okay, you put one foot out here, and then you put the other foot here, and you balance a little bit, and let's talk about gyroscopes and, and all of that, and the whole balancing. Is that what they did? No, what happened? Finally, the child got tired of rubbing his knees raw and scooching his little bottom across the the floor to get what they want. And finally, they wanted something so bad that they got up and they took the first step. And it was wild, wasn't it? I mean, it's like the the tottering, teetering, oh, which way are you going? And mom and dad, I can't wait for them to walk. It's going to be so wonderful. They'll be mobile on their own. Six months later, they say, why did we teach that kid to walk? We have to put everything four feet off the ground. And then after they walk, they climb. And after they're doing all that, they're talking. And, you, and how many pray, prayers from the parents are saying, Lord, please help them to be quiet tomorrow? You're praying against yourself. And as Christians, do we have that? Our daughter and son-in-law, Liz and Sam, Four years ago, just a little over four years ago, gave birth to a Down syndrome child. She has a blog that she puts on every year. It's called Our Hot Rod Lincoln. His name is Lincoln Myrick. As I was preparing this and thinking about what does it mean to believe, to connect, to disciple others, I ran across her blog. It's called What I Would Have Missed, One Day Blog. And I want to read it as I close. This can be a dangerous game, the what-if game. It can lead to to grasses greener type of thinking if you're not careful, but it can also, when done carefully, remind a person of how far they've come, how lucky they are to be standing in the exact spot their feet have landed. A recent research study got me thinking about how different our lives would have looked if Lincoln didn't have Down syndrome, DS she calls it, Down syndrome. So today I want to look at what 
what if Link had been born with 46 chromosomes, pink and fat and happy and healthy and typical? I have no doubt we would have adored Lincoln instantly. We would have taken 30 seconds to thank God for another healthy child, though we would have really been thinking that we were pretty much expecting a healthy child, and really it was no big surprise that we produced another perfect little bundle of joy. We would have taken him home, happy and tired, and fallen back into the pattern of bickering that we'd picked up after Nico, our first, was born. We would have continued taking our frustration and exhaustion out on each other, and though we were struggling to get by, we would have kept on insisting that we can do it, we can do it, we can do it all alone. We would not have been cauterized together as a family the way we were when Lincoln was born. We would not have been driven together by the sudden realization that surviving now meant more than making it through late-night feedings. We wouldn't have been united in the common cause of getting Lincoln home from the NICU and getting him the best care and therapy we possibly could. And what's more, I don't think we would ever have realized that we couldn't do it alone. We wouldn't have been forced out uh, to reach out to a community who had experience with something we were just beginning blindly to experience. We would have remained ins insulated, wrapped up in ourselves and our ways of doing things. Instead of reaching out to the Down Syndrome community, instead of joining a church and, and, ask, and, and learning to ask for and accept help from family and friends and that church when we need it, we would have been stuck telling ourselves, I can do this if I just work a little harder, if I just read another book on parenting or count to three before I lash out at the kids and if I nap when they nap so I'm not so frazzled, it will be okay. Instead, we had the unbelievably freeing experience of being forced to say, Lord, this is harder than I thought. I'm in over my head here. Lord, I need your help. That has brought us support we would never have known existed otherwise. It has allowed us to put our egos aside and learn what's best for our children. It has allowed us to learn from experts and also at times to learn to ignore what the experts say, to listen to what God places in our heart about what our children need. Without our Lincoln in all his 47 chromosomal glory, we would not have been able to, ra to raise the considerate, empathetic person Nico, his older brother, is becoming. We would have been so focused on how bright he is, on what a glowing future that, pre that predicted for him. We would have taught him that being smart and succeeding in school were top priorities for his life instead of, out instead of outside, I'm going to get it here in a second, instead of teaching him that being a person of character is the most important future we can envision t for him. What version of success would we have conveyed to both boys? Now listen to this. I know it's long, but I want you to get this. Unfor undoubtedly, both of our children would have been raised to be more shallow, more quick to notice status and ability rather than personality or character. Nico would have been infinitely more selfish if he had not been raised with a brother who needs so much time and attention. If he had not been, if he had been allowed to keep hogging the spotlight and taught tacitly that he deserved all the attention he could capture. And we, as their parents, would have sadly believed that the measure of our success was closely related to how much praise and attention our sons get, garnered from around the world. How many people they charmed, how many awards they received, how many dollars they made. I think none of us would ever really have known what we had. We would have been the bright, healthy parents of two bright, healthy children. Two little, little fireballs destined for greatness. Smart enough to get into any college, tackle any career. I have a feeling that that would have been very important for us, and we would have been tempted to live vicariously like academic stage moms do with their children.
and we would have thought all was as it should be. We would have felt that we deserved to have healthy, brilliant children whose trajectories had no end in sight. We would never have known the fear of watching a son struggle to breathe. We would never have known the terror of a son with a hole in his heart, a mouth that refused to accept food and lungs too sluggish to adapt to the outside world. We would never have known the terror of reading the list of possible health conditions our son might have. We would never have lived through those days when we believed heart surgery was imminent and, soon, and, and when we learned that even with the best scenario health, health outcomes, the average lifespan for Lincoln is 45 years. We would never have known that every single day is a gift. Every single day is an amazing, undeserved gift of time with our beautiful children with each other. We would have gone on believing that we deserved every day, deserved every breath, and we would have taken them all for granted if Lincoln had not forced us to face the fact that we are all temporary, we're all broken, and we only get a small chunk of time here, we would have taken for granted thousands upon thousands of deep breaths steady heartbeats, and tiny spoonfuls of food shoved into a tiny mouth. We would not have cried and cheered at the very first time that a bite of ice cream actually stayed down. We would not have caught our breath and wondered at a few steady footfalls on a flight of stairs. I would not have learned the intimate and complex language of a wordless child. Lincoln still doesn't speak. He climbs up next to me in a chair and gestures in a downright cheerful way for his list of demands. Water, please. Pull the blanket over our legs so we can share warmth. And then he focuses my face on TV so we can watch the cartoon together. I would never have known someone could say all that without saying anything at all. But now I know how much we say to each other even without speaking. I know the value of just being there next to someone, speaking the shared language of family that does not require you to get all the words right to get your point across. If Lincoln had been born without Down syndrome, I would never have known that we desperately needed someone to remind us of a few important things. I would never have known that sometimes not having your prayer answered is the miracle that God wants for us in itself. Did you get that? Not having your prayer answered is the miracle itself. That sometimes what you think you want has to be swept aside to make room for what you need. I, I would perhaps have heard people quote something like that and not in an agreement at the sentiment, but I never would have known it, really known it, with the understanding of someone who has lived the truth rather than just read it in a book. And I don't know that I would ever have been able to believe there was a plan for my life as I'd always been told until I saw the plan God had myself. I don't know that I would have seen my faith revived as it has been in the past few years without experiencing an event so unexpected, so unsettling that it reminded me why I needed to believe in the first place. And finally... The first lesson Lincoln, Lincoln's diagnosis taught us. Without those early days in the hospital, trying to make sense of our new role, Sam and I would not have learned firsthand that you don't have to run the whole race at once. You just have to take one more step, each moment, one at a time, Focusing on the moment at hand frees you from worry over the next 2,000 steps ahead and forces you to see and hear and breathe in the beauty and the value of each moment that God gives us of your too short life. She's discipling Lincoln, and Lincoln is discipling her. That's the way God planned it. Would you pray with me? Father, you've given us
this time of year to refocus us once again on a radical concept. To love you, to accept you, to find forgiveness and life in you means that we have to believe. We have to come into connection. We have to learn to take those few steps ourselves. And the truth is, Father, that we're more disabled than Lincoln. He's found joy every day. And the simple faith that you have given us is so hard because we're so busy trying to do things in our own power. And the radical part of what you want us to do is to to depend on you completely, totally. We need you, Father. We need you today. Father, if, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, may they come to you. And may those of us who have known you for many years come back to the radical faith that you've called us to have, to live, to love, to believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.